So January marks a natural time in society where we have a tendency to reflect on the year that was and anticipate the year that will be. It's a time of resolutions and reflections. And so we like to kind of uh, integrate with that same mindset here at our church around this same time of year to really kind of chart of course forward, right? To say, all right, let's take a time and evaluate where we are as a church, where we've been as a church, and where God is leading us. This is kind of a little bit of a state of the church address, so to speak, an opportunity for us to refocus on who we are as University Baptist Church, what God has been doing, and where he's leading us for the year to come. So I'm going to take some time to dive into that this morning, and and really towards the end of the message is when we'll get a chance to briefly look at Romans 12, verse 1. Uh, But before we get to Romans 12, here's where I'd want to begin. When I think about who we are as a church, our culture, what we're pursuing, I would say that it kind of builds upon itself. It's like these sequential layers that, that lead into one another. And so when you dig down to the very bottom and found the most foundational layer for who we are as a church, I would point us to the prayer of UBC. Hopefully you've heard it. Hopefully you've seen it. Hopefully you are growing to understand it. Our prayer is that the power of God would be unleashed in our lives, our church, our community, and our world so that every tongue, tribe, and nation can come to know and proclaim the saving work of Jesus Christ. That's our prayer, right? And so what I mean by that is that if you come to be a part of this church family, our sincerest hope and desire is that God's power begins to work itself out in your life, that you're changed, that you're molded, that you're transformed, that you find healing, that you find grace, that you sense a dramatic shift in what God is doing in your heart. That power begins to be unleashed in your life. Now, the natural consequence of that is that we begin to see that in our church because we're not just a collection of individuals. We are a community of believers. And so as he begins to work in in our lives, he begins to work in us as a church, and we see that power in the things that we do as a community of believers. And the natural consequence of that is that that power begins to overflow to the community around us. Right, a church that is consumed by the power of God is going to leave its mark on the neighborhoods, the streets, the schools, and the people in their midst. This community should feel the power of God because we are feeling the power of God. And then the natural consequence of that is that it's going to lead us beyond our community and that also because of the globalization of the world, we have the world represented in our midst. So this picture that we see painted in the book of Revelation, we, got, we get to lean into this idea that before the throne of the Lamb, every tongue, tribe, and nation will bow down and worship, right? That, that Jesus commissions his followers to go into all the world, to go to all nations, right? That is what we should be seeing, every tongue, tribe, and nation coming to know and proclaim, right? What that means is that as we continue to move forward in this call, people's relationships with God change. We better know who he is. We better understand his heart. And the natural consequence of that is that we can't help proclaim who he is. And as we do all those things, this power of God is best articulated and accentuated and revealed in the saving work of Jesus Christ. It's the gospel, as best as we can explain it. And our response to the gospel, that's the foundation of who we are as a church. Now, The the next layer above that that begins to build from that is that you end up with certain values, right? You end up with certain priorities, certain convictions of how you're going to pursue that and live a life that God's power is working within us. So at a church like ours, we have these key convictions. 
We have these things that we've identified as certain core values for us as a church, things that guide our priorities in particular that we want to always maintain as a church. For example, we are going to be gospel-centered. Everything that we do is going to take us back to Jesus and what he has done. We're going to be biblically guided. Right? We're going to follow the scripture and see it as authoritative, not what the world says, not what culture says, not my opinion, not your opinion. We're going to do our best to submit to the authority of the word of God. We're going to be prayer-driven with an emphasis on fasting. Right? We, we see prayer as the greater work. It has to be foundational to everything that we do. We want this to be a place where there is discipleship focus. You hear the words discipleship over and over and over again to so many of the different ministries that we embark upon and that we engage in. Right? We want that to be the heartbeat of what we do. We want this to be a place for spiritual worship, right? understanding that worship is more than music and songs that you sing, but a lifestyle that you live. We're going to talk more about that here towards the end of the message. We want this to be a place where we understand what it means to give holistically of ourselves, not just giving financially, but giving time, giving talents, giving resources, giving our dreams, giving ourselves in a spirit of servanthood to one another and to the people around us. We want this to be a place where your families are valued, right? That if you come here, your family, whatever it looks like, is strengthened, is nurtured, is cared for in good times and in bad, that you see that your family is valued no matter what it looks like. That to be a part of this church means that you're a part of a loving community, right? A community that's gonna allow you to be loved within these walls and then challenge you to love the community beyond these walls, right? We're gonna be a loving community who loves the community. Right? These are our key convictions. We've talked about these in great detail earlier in my time here, and you can reference those if you want to hear more on it, but those convictions also guide us as a church. Now, that prayer and those convictions, hopefully they sound good, hopefully they're encouraging and inspiring to some level, but they're also kind of nebulous. It's like, what do they look like practically? How does that really begin to demonstrate some sort of tangible expression of what it means to be a part of this church. And so you inevitably long for that tangible expression of those things, which is what leads us to this next layer of the vision of our church. Right? When we talk about the vision of our church, we try to narrow our focus to three tangible things. We want to be disciples who make disciples, a people who love justice, and a place for healing. Right? We, we use those phrases repeatedly, but this past April, we tried to actually quantify to the best of our ability some specific goals that would challenge us to not just live into those goals, but experience these convictions and demonstrate this prayer that we so frequently pray, right? So that's what introduced this 220 and 200 theme that we've referenced from time to time since April, right? It's something that we put before you, and this is a good way for us to reflect upon what has been going on in this church and who we are and where we are today. So if you go in that order, two references the idea that we wanna be a place for healing, this is the recovery idea that you just saw promoted with our renewal ministry, right? What we are desiring is for this to be a place in a church where you can truly come and be authentically you, right? To be able to come forward and recognize things that are struggles, things that are difficult, and to recognize that that's something we care about, right? That you don't have to come here and pretend, which is so often the case with church, right? And so what do we often wanna do? We wanna conceal those things, we wanna hide those things, and a lot of times that's easier. Pretend like those issues aren't there. Pretend like I don't need that sort of stuff. But we wanted to move beyond that and say, well, let's really strive for that sort of authentic renewal that we all need. And so the number two represents two groups, a men's group and a women's group that will help lead out in that ministry. You heard Caroline reference it earlier. We have those groups in place 
and we're incredibly excited about living into that vision. And I hope that's something that you'll engage with as we move into the next part of this year. Now, then you go to 20. 20 speaks to our goal that we wanted to have 20 individuals or families advocating for foster care and adoption. Now, this is a, a very specific goal that resonates with this call to be people who love justice, right? And our intent as a church is that we want to aspire to make a difference in the world around us. Our call is not to retreat and withdraw and insulate ourselves and be afraid of the world around us, but to truly be a light that shines in the darkness. So we wanna look for those areas of injustices and make a difference. And so when we talk about advocating for foster care and adoption, let me quickly explain to you the why and the how. Okay, the, the reason we did that is because when you think about trying to shine a light in the darkness and all the different areas where that could take place, there are a lot of injustices in the world, a lot of different opportunities for you to go and serve and make a difference as a church. The reason we zeroed in on adoption and foster care Yes, it's biblical, right? We see it referenced on several occasions in the scripture, but beyond that, we also see it to be very strategic because when you begin to consider all the different ills that face society, right, incarceration, drug use, teen pregnancy, depression, uh, dropping out of high school, gang activity, uh, trafficking, I mean, figure out the list. You know what one of the most consistent common denominators across all those things are? Broken homes, fatherless homes, children that didn't have a mom and a dad to help them, right? So if you address that issue, you address a multitude of issues. So that's why we've zeroed in on it, right? We see it as not just biblical, but strategic. And so we are calling ourselves to advocate for those things. So how do we advocate? Because I know a lot of times in this conversation of foster care and adoption comes up, several people are like, that's just not me. I'm, I'm more passionate about these things. I don't know if I could really help that. And we often envision the most extreme example of actual foster care and adoption. Now, let me be clear. We want that. Like, if we had 20 families come forward and say, I'm ready to foster and adopt, we, I'd be doing backflips. I mean, I'm not good at backflips. I can't do backflips, let's be honest. But I would try because I'd be that excited. And so we know that that's not for everyone, though. But advocacy can manifest itself in a lot of different ways. Since this time that we've stated this goal, we have seen more than 20 people come forward, and here are the different ways they're advocating. Yes, some have said, I'm ready to foster and adopt. We've seen others that have come forward who have actually formed new ministries to meet the needs of foster care families. We've seen people step forward to say, I wanna help provide babysitting. Others that have said, I wanna be a mentoring family because I've been down this road and I'm gonna provide expertise and counsel to those that are just now going down this road. We've had a photographer come forward and say, I wanna be able to offer free family photography for people that are foster families. Like there are so many different ways that you can advocate for this. So it's for everyone. No matter your age, no matter your season of life, we can step forward in this and be a people who love justice. Now the last goal that kinda of helps encapsulate where we are as a church and where we've been is 200. We challenged ourselves as a congregation that we wanted to see 200 baptisms uh, between Easter to Easter. And so that's been our trajectory. That's what we're aspiring to. You heard me, hopefully, if you were here with us in December, give a report on where things stand with that. And uh, at the beginning of December, we've seen and had the chance to celebrate somewhere in the neighborhood of 12 to 13 baptisms. Now, let me clarify again, though, because I said this when we started this. That doesn't mean all 200 baptisms need to take place right there. Right, we, we've said people are gonna to wanna to be baptized in a lot of different ways and a lot of different reasons. What we're aspiring to is that if you have a direct relational investment in that person's formation as a follower of Jesus, then we wanna celebrate it. 
right? And so we've seen at least eight or nine here, an additional three or four beyond this baptistry, and then we have about another five or six that are in the pipeline. So we're on the cusp of about 20. And so I celebrate that, as I told you in December, because all of last year we had eight, and all of the year before that we had six. So that's an exciting trajectory. But I also recognize some of you are sitting there going, but 200 is still a long way from 20. But I fully believe we can get there. I can't read the scriptures and pretend like God can't just do it overnight and far more than we could even imagine because it's not really about the number. What I would tell you is that we're gonna hold on to that number as long as it takes and God can determine the timing. But the reality is, is that the reason we've identified this as a goal is because it helps us live into this vision to be disciples who make disciples. How do we get there? Our plan was not just to throw out a number and see what happens. The challenge that we've extended to each and every one of you that are part of this church is, is there someone in your life, your household, whatever your household looks like, if it's just you, if it's you and your spouse, if it's you and your children, whatever it is, if your household made a commitment to invest in someone that you knew was far from God, that needed the hope of Jesus, if you poured into them, invited them over for dinner, showed them love, met their needs, cared for them, were there for them, talked to them about Jesus, is it reasonable to believe that at some point they would wanna make that decision to follow Jesus, mark that decision with baptism, and walk with you in a discipling relationship? It's not unreasonable at all, but each and every one of us has to do our part. And that's exciting because of what that does to us as a church. It means we all get to live on the edge of that calling. It means that hopefully each and every Sunday, many of you that are here are here because you're seeking to better understand God, because somebody's investing in you. And if you're not here, then maybe they're investing in you in your neighborhoods or in your homes or whatever it is. But if we all do this, then absolutely we can see that happen. Now, when you think about all those things and where we've been, the 220 and the 200 and all those different layers that they're built upon, here's what I would say, a couple of things to kind of wrap that piece up. Is it easy to come to a renewal ministry, recovery ministry, and confront all the challenges and struggles and sins that you're going through? No. It's scary, it's difficult. Is it easy to commit to work through those things for a full year? No. But we're not interested in what's easy. We're interested in what's meaningful. Is it easy to engage in foster care and adoption, to actually welcome a child that you don't fully know into your home who's got all sorts of trauma and background and, and challenges? Is it easy to figure out the best way to advocate for families who are going through that? No. Is it easy to make disciples when people are often resistant to the gospel, they've been wounded by the church, when they're not interested in spending that kind of time? Is they, are these things easy? No. But we're not interested in what's easy, we're interested in what's meaningful. Which leads me to an opening question for you, not just for today, but for this year. What do you expect out of church? Like, why are you here? What, what are you looking for? What do you want? Let me just be very clear. Like if you want what's easy and convenient in a church that's going to appeal to your comforts and desires, we are not the church for you. Right, like if you're looking for something that's trendy and relevant and is going to naturally integrate you into a cool social scene that you get to still label as Christian and allow you to be around people that think like you and talk like you and act, we are not the church for you. 
right? If you're looking for a church that's gonna fill up your events calendar so that you and your family have plenty of things to do and you can find comfort and fulfilling all those activities and guidelines because it's a good environment and a good Christian place, we're not the church for you. Because <laughs> we're not interested in what's easy. And let me tell you what we're doing here. Y'all, we, we are standing upon thousands of years, generation after generation, of a sacred gathering of believers. And yes, throughout those thousands of years, some of those believers have had the luxury to gather in a beautiful building with space upon space to fill it up with events and activities and studies, to have incredible equipment to satisfy your musical preferences and all the different things that we can do, and it's not why we gather. It should not be what you're looking for in church. Because the reality is, is that most generations for these thousands of years haven't had those sorts of luxuries. Many have had to gather in secret, in homes, in quiet places, out of fear of persecution and punishment. Some do get to sing to the top of their voices, but many have to sing in hushed tones. And the reason we all gather, whether it's in that luxury or in that secrecy, is because of Jesus. That's why we're here, because we actually believe that Jesus is Lord in every sense of the word. He is Lord of your life, and we believe with our whole hearts, that God raised him from the dead and set you and me free from the bondage of sin and death. That's why we're here. And I assure you that following him is not easy, but it is incredibly meaningful. It's the most meaningful thing you can ever do. So what are you expecting? Well, I can tell you we're going to do everything we can not to give you the easy faith, but a meaningful one. And I want you to know how we try to pursue that as we move into the year ahead. Go ahead and grab your Bibles, turn to Romans 12. I only have a few things to say about this because I wanted to take more time talking about all of those things that we've been looking at. As you turn to Romans 12, let me just tell you, my family, we love movie nights. Okay, I don't know if anybody else in here is a big fan of movies. We are in our home to the point that we've actually established a certain rhythm and routine to our week where Friday night is movie night. We protect Fridays. We rarely do things with friends those nights. It's really just for our family. We'll find something fun to eat, maybe play a few games, and then we sit down and we watch a movie. We take turns, right? So one member of the family gets a chance to choose once a week, right? And so it works through the whole family. Everybody gets an opportunity which means you got a great variety of movies that you're seeing from week to week. Uh, our kids love to pick the new ones. Jennifer and I love to introduce our kids to the classics that we grew up on, which is a pretty hit and miss approach, but we love it. And so uh, not too long ago, a couple months ago, it was Annabelle's turn, and she chose the great cinematic classic, Megamind. I don't know if you've seen Megamind recently, but uh, we were watching that movie, and the opening scene is of a sunset, and then all of a sudden you hear the voiceover of the protagonist saying, well, how was your day today? Well, my day has been pretty difficult. I was thrown in prison. I lost my girlfriend. I'm fighting my arch nemesis. And as he begins this 
voiceover, you see this silhouette of a figure enter into the picture as it begins to descend in front of the sun. Camera angle then changes to an aerial view. You see the protagonist falling to his doom to the base of the earth. And as he's falling, you hear that voiceover continue. And oh yeah, by the way, I'm falling to my imminent death. And, and then he says, how did we get here? Well, let's go back to the beginning. And then the rest of the movie takes you all, like it literally takes him back to where he was born and you watch so much of the movie that then leads you back to that moment at the end where he's falling to his death. Now, I share that with you because that is an actual literary technique for storytelling. It's called in media res, right? Which is Latin for in the midst of things, right? You see this a lot in storytelling where you start with a particular crucial moment and then go back and explain how you got there. Britannica.com offers a, a brief explanation for us this morning. It says that it's the practice of beginning an epic or other narrative by plunging into a crucial situation that is a part of a related chain of events. The narrative then goes directly forward and exposition of earlier events is supplied by flashbacks. Okay, so we're familiar with this. If you can't picture Megamind, because it's been a while since you've seen it, another example would be Forrest Gump. Right, it begins with him sitting there at the bus stop talking to the lady about box of chocolates. Those are really comfortable shoes. I bet if I think really hard, I can remember my first pair of shoes. Then he squints, takes us back. So the opening scene is in the midst of things, right? And the reason I tell you that is because that's going to be kind of how we start our year, in the midst of things. Let me explain. Uh, if I were to identify one primary scripture of focus that's going to govern our time together in 2022, it's going to be the book of Romans. Uh, I love the book of Romans. It's easily one of my favorite books, and it's one that I've, I've constantly wanted us to, to dive into. I never really could figure out the best way because it is so long, uh, and it would take a long time to get through. And to be honest, even though it's going to be one of our primary messages or texts that we utilize for this year, we're not going to get through it. We're going to get through about chapter 8. Because uh, we're going to take our time with it. You thought Jonah was long, get ready. For those of you that were here for Jonah, you know what I'm talking about. Um, but we're going to spend our time in it. Now, granted, throughout the year, we're going to have different sub-series that will take us to different passages in Scripture. So we'll get a mixture throughout the year. But we're going to work through Romans because it carries so many critical elements. But we're not going to begin with Romans 1. Today, and, and next week in particular, we're going to start in the midst of things. Romans 12. And the reason we're going to do that is because Romans 12, I would argue, is a very crucial situation in the whole letter. And I'll explain that a little bit further here in just a moment. But it comes at a very critical moment in the letter. But I would also tell you it comes at a very crucial moment for us. Because Romans 12 is going to introduce a theme that I think is very important for where we are as a church and where we are in society. Right, when, I, when I try to think through where we're going to be going through these sermon series, every fall I take some time to prayerfully reflect upon, spend some time in the scripture, uh, talking to various people to try to get a sense of where is God leading us, what do we need to look at. And as I go through that process, then I plan out a whole year. Right? So we've got all these sermon plans done for 2022 that is kind of the fruit of that prayerful consideration. But even though we write them all out, they're held very loosely so that we can continue to listen to what God wants us to hear. And there are numerous times where I might pivot and change and do something different, but it gives us a general direction. So as I'm going through that process, I'm often looking for what, what is the, the theme? What is something that's gonna drive our focus as we go into a new year? Last year, it was fix your eyes on Jesus. 
right? We, we kept going back to Hebrews 12 over and over again. How do we make sense to navigate through this crazy world that we're living in? Well, fix your eyes on Jesus. And that was the theme for everything that we did, right? And so, so we want a similar theme. And I would argue that Romans 12 does a phenomenal job of capturing what I feel like the Lord has laid on my heart for us to pursue. Because as I was thinking through the different things that I sensed the Spirit leading us to consider, I kept coming back to this idea that we need to be different. Like we need to be set apart as the body of Christ. We need to look different from the world around us. The natural progression after I fix my eyes on Jesus is that my life should change. Like I should be different from the world around me. I should be countercultural. And that continued to resonate with me, and, and it appeals to me as a very crucial thing for us to consider, because when I look around right now, more often than not, we're not doing that as the church. We're not, we're not standing out in the right ways. In many ways, we're blending in, and we're succumbing to all the turmoil and chaos that is around us. And if there was ever a time for the church to breach out of that, it's now. But what does that look like? So I, I was kind of exploring different words that hopefully would capture that sentiment. I was thinking about being countercultural, distinct, or chosen, but all those words seemed to, to come short of what I was really pursuing or what I felt like the Lord was really laying on our heart. Even some of them even kind of continuing to uh, exacerbate the problem, like the word countercultural. I'm like, that can almost be interpreted as being against the culture, which is the last thing we need right now. And so the more I kept thinking about it, it was this idea that we don't need to be conformed to the patterns of this world. We need to be transformed. And so how does that transformation take place? Renewal. A renewed life. That's where you begin to look different. And that's the word that I would say is a theme for us or a phrase that's a theme for us as we move into this next year where God is leading us is what does it mean to have a renewed life? To have a renewed self, a renewed family, a renewed church, to live as God's renewed people, what does that look like? It is that sense of renewal where we finally find that transformation in a healthy and meaningful way. Our tendency is to, to pigeonhole this idea of renewal to a seasonal experience, right? Maybe when I'm just going through a really difficult time, I just need to be re-energized and recharged. But the book of 1 Corinthians tells us, or 2 Corinthians tells us, outwardly we're being wasting away every single day, but inwardly we're being renewed day by day. It is not a seasonal part of the Christian life, it is an essential part of the Christian identity to have this renewed life. So Romans 12 does a great job of introducing and capturing that theme for us. So what I'm gonna do just momentarily, I'm gonna do a quick reading of Romans 12, one through two, have a, just one or two brief comments about the first verse, Next week, we'll look at the second verse, and then the next two weeks, or, or however many weeks we have left in January, we're going to look at an Old Testament story that helps kind of continue to teach this idea of what a renewed life looks like, and then we'll get to Romans 1. All right, so that's our plan. So let's pick it up. Romans chapter 12, we'll read verses 1 and 2, and then I'll just have a few brief comments about verse 1. It says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test 
and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Okay, just a couple of thoughts to help set the tone for us this morning. Uh, When you look at the beginning of Romans chapter 12, I mentioned to you earlier, this comes at a very crucial part of the letter. That first word, therefore, right? Anytime you see that in scripture, you need to ask yourself, what's the therefore, therefore, right? That's what they taught us in seminary. That's what I paid all that money for. Good piece of advice. So it's a good point though, right? What is he building upon? He's drawing upon something that he's previously stated. But part of what I want you to see is that at Romans 12, he's not just building upon the previous paragraph or even just the previous chapter. I would argue he's building upon everything that he's said in the first 11 chapters. Like this is an incredible moment. It's like everything that he has written and all this incredible parts of Romans 5, Romans 8, all these beautiful passages that we so frequently quote are leading to this crucial declaration at Romans 12, right? So, so he's building upon a whole wealth of what has been said, and he's doing it with urgency, right? You hear that at the beginning of the verse, I urge you brothers and sisters. So when we read this verse, we need to recognize this isn't a suggestion. It's not like just an off thought or or an aside or just some kind of random thing that he wants to present. He is saying with great urgency, with earnestness, this is a command. I'm begging, I'm pleading with you to hear these things. So he's presenting it at a crucial moment with great urgency, and he's doing so with a reminder for us to have a full view of God's mercy. Now, I loved that because when you think about everything that we've just done for the past year, when you fix your eyes on Jesus, you have the opportunity to fully see the mercy of God. Right? I mean, like, that's what we've been doing for the whole year. Like, our hearts are prepared to hear what comes next. Because when you fix your eyes on Jesus and you think about the names that are attributed to him, that he is servant and teacher and shepherd, when you hear the words that he offers to the church to repent, to overcome, when you see the way that he tells these stories and his parables that speak to the kingdom of God and the character of God, when we see that he's fully God and fully man, willing to be obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, when we truly fix our eyes on Jesus, we see the fullness of God's mercy. Right? And what I love about this particular passage is that it's actually written with what is known as an intensive plural. So what that means is is that some translations are gonna say in view of God's mercies. But the reason the NIV leaves it as singular is because an intensive plural can also be translated as great mercy, right? So it's an emphasis on the extent of God's mercy, right? It's pointing to that divine characteristic where God is so moved and compelled to save mankind from sin and death through Jesus, right? In view of the mercy of God, of God. Now, here's what's also really important about that as we talk through it, right? I want you to see that the way that this is laid out is that it is the mercy of God that builds upon and creates the transformed life, the renewed life, right? You don't try to live differently to obtain mercy. It's because you have mercy that you live differently, right? That's a critical component to understanding what's taking place here in the scripture and how it's so different from so many other religious worldviews. Like when I was in India uh, many, many years ago, we wanted to go visit a Hindu temple. I wanted to see what worship looked like 
in that setting and in that environment. And it was really interesting to observe people purchasing various sacrifices and incense that they could then take to various parts of the temple and light them and pray. And it was a very interesting climate. And so I asked the missionaries that I was with at that point in time, I said, so tell me, what do you think is going on in their heart and their mind as they're walking through this? What does worship feel like to them? And what they told me is, is that in this culture in particular, your mindset is that if something's going wrong in your life, right, like your family's not well, your job is struggling, you're, you've got all these different hardships or difficulties, well then you must not have prayed hard enough or you must need to go back to the temple. So the point is, more often than not, those folks are going to the temple to obtain mercy. What we're doing is we're experiencing God's mercy outside of anything that we've done. When you fix your eyes on Jesus, you see that that mercy is already offered fully and completely in the cross. And so this plea, this urging, this, this command that Paul is presenting is a response to the mercy of God, not to obtain the mercy of God. And so part of what I want you to hear this morning as we reflect upon this is to recognize who God is. I don't know how you view him right now. Does he feel distant to you? Does he feel judgmental? Does he feel harsh, uncaring? I don't know what your view is of him, but I will assure you that when you fix your eyes on Jesus, we're all reminded that our God is merciful. He gives you breath. And that is his mercy on full display. He gives you Jesus. That is his mercy. And so in full view of God's mercy, what is our response? Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Several things that I want to quickly address there. The idea of bodies is important to remember Right? Because what we like to do is we, we pull from the Greco-Roman mindset. And what the Greco-Roman mindset in Western world often equates to is that there is a distinction between body and soul. Right? The body is just the canister for the soul. And as it wears out and then dies, the soul is then set free. This is a common belief that you and I naturally bring because of our society that we've grown up in. It is not biblical. Right? What the scriptures teach, body is soul. They are together. Are there distinctions? Absolutely, but not to the extent that we often see it, right? That when it's saying offer your bodies, it's saying offer your mind, your heart, your soul, your physical existence, offer everything to God, right? And you see it being paired with these words like sacrifice and worship. We don't have enough time to dive into the whole worship subject today, but it is a great reminder that when you look at it in the scriptures, worship is so much more than the songs that you sing on a Sunday. It is the lifestyle you live. It is marked with sacrifice. It is another way of describing servanthood. It is this call to serve God and serve others, right? And so that's the description that's being offered, but the operative word there, that the command is to offer yourself, offer everything that you are to this call of sacrifice and worship. That word offer means to make available, to make yourself free to these things, right? And so let me ask you that question, again, not just for this morning, but really for the year. Have you made yourself available to God? Like, because what this is, is this is striking to that spirit that says, God, I'm giving you all that I am. 
Right? I'm giving you my job, I'm giving you my family, I'm giving you my career, my dreams, my money, my ambitions. I'm offering all of it. It's all available to you to be used for your glory. Have you made yourself available to that extent? Right? Have you given yourself wholly to this gospel in response to his mercy? We are to offer ourselves with that sort of mindset and that sort of thinking. And when we make ourselves available, we have to think about the steps that are in place or that are necessary to create that sort of freedom, to create that sort of availability. That's where you see words that are pretty important to consider, like holy and pleasing to God, right? Holiness speaks to this renouncing of sins. And that's a good reminder, again, for us at this time of the year, where we are in our own lives, that it's not just about, hey, what are my goals for this year, but what are things that I need to renounce? What are things I need to repent of? What are things that I need to set aside? Right, because the more that we are sidetracked and the more that we are giving ourselves to, to things that hinder, things that entangle, the more that we begin to commit ourselves to the things of this world, the less available we are to offer ourselves to God. So I wanna encourage you, take some time. This next week, as you head into this new year, what are things that I need to be done with? What are things that I need to renounce in my life so that I can more freely and willingly make myself available to him and I can offer myself to him? I'll close with this. If I were to try to summarize with one word the main point of emphasis here in Romans 1 that is gonna be built upon next week with Romans 2, it's It's devotion. It's dedication, right? This, this spirit that says, I'm gonna devote everything I am to you, right? Part of what I want us to see is that the beginning of a renewed life, the beginning of being set apart and being different starts with devotion. It starts with that sort of dedication. And so a question we have to ask ourselves this morning am I actually devoted to what I need to be devoted to? Because I think most of us would say, I know what devotion looks like. I know what it means to dedicate myself to things. I think more often than not, though, our devotion and dedication is just misplaced. We'll devote ourselves to our careers, to our families, to our dreams, to money, to stat, whatever it is. So where is your devotion? Where is it placed? Right? Our call and where I believe God is going to lead us and what I'm so excited to explore together is that when we truly fix our eyes on Jesus and see all that he is, we can't help but dedicate ourselves to him, to devote our lives to him. And so I want to join with Paul and sit with you in hearing these words and, and challenge one another, encourage one another that we truly can urge one another in view of God's mercy to offer all that we are as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, that this is our spiritual act of worship, that the devoted life is what leads to the renewed life. I guarantee you, it's not easy, but it's absolutely meaningful. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we love you. And we ask, God, that you would help us devote our hearts and our minds and our bodies to everything that you are. Help us make ourselves available to you. God, illuminate the things in our lives that we need to repent of, that we need to renounce, the things that can hinder 
and distract and lead us astray. And help us come before you, God, once again, not seeking to obtain your mercy, but in an overwhelming gratitude for it. Help us to offer out our praise to you with a life that is willing to be a living sacrifice. God, a a lifestyle of worship. God, help us to be those people that live that devotion, live that dedication out on a day-by-day basis so that we really can become the people that you've called us to be. We can find this renewal that comes in this gospel, that we would be able to truly, once again, be set apart in such a way that it allows others to see you for who you are. So God, as we strive for that, we know the most important part is to see you clearly, to see how you see us, to be reminded of this mercy on a regular basis, who we are in your eyes, that we have been chosen, we're not forsaken, we're your children. And we find comfort in that today. We find the meaning that our hearts long for. In Jesus' name, amen.